0: us we pray in Jesus name amen you may take your seats thank you thank you thank you we're grateful for all who come and participate in the worship of the living true God coming into God's presence changes everything Uh, you don't have to live life as if you're just on your own and you're just having to, to make it work by yourself uh, we come into God's presence through singing, we come with thanksgiving in our hearts, but we also come with open ears to hear what he has to say. If uh, you could bring the word cloud up, I always want to remind folks that when you're at New Covenant, you're at a Bible-believing church. The gospel is central. I hope that you know what it is. I hope that you can articulate it, and because the gospel is resonating within us, it changes us. We, we see how big he is, and that's what reform means. Uh, we also see how... Other people need help and care, and that's why we are cherishing, uh, worshiping together, and actually meeting other people's needs. At this time, though, I do want to draw your attention to the very Word of God. I've come as a pastor to expose what's in the text, not to read into it, but to let you see what's already there. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, let's reverently attend the public reading of God's in- inerrant, inspired, infallible words as given in the originals. Um, While you're turning there to Romans 1, I just have to give a quick commercial for Sunday school. Uh, It is a delight. We meet from 9 to 10, and we've been going through uh, in the last few weeks about the Bible uh, and how important it is to us, and it's sufficiently clear. Please come and enjoy it. Uh, We've been looking at it through the eyes of some of the pastors back in the 1600s, Uh, Some of their insights are profound. But let's now look at at the words of God, which are the final authority. This is the counsel of God. This is actually God speaking to you and me through the written word. We're looking at the famous verses 16 and 17 and into verse 18. So let us reverently attend to God's word. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then he shifts a little bit about something else that's revealed. In verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven... ...against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men... ...who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I want to read the word again. I'm going to add a little bit more as you read it. This is a new passage to some of you. I'll tell you that verse 16 is one that I have cherished by memory for a long time. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that that's something that would easily flow off of your lips as well. But if you look back in verse uh, 14... In Romans chapter 1, verse 14, the Apostle Paul has been uh, bringing some thoughts together. I've been trying to organize it for us in our text, but let's hear it again. He says, I am under the obligation, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So now that's Paul telling us about himself, saying, I have this longing, I've got to do this. He says, I am, verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. I want you to hear it, especially you in Rome. I'm writing this letter to you, but I want to preach the gospel to you in Rome. Verse 16, now that he has expressed his longing, he says, I am not ashamed. I'm not hesitant. This gospel is pretty amazing. I don't cower, I don't back down, I don't don't get afraid. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the euangelion in the Greek, for it is the power of God. The Greek word there is dunamis. It is the, the dynamite of God to bring about salvation. And it's interesting here, to everyone, but then it has a caveat here, to everyone who is believing, to everyone who is believing. He says there's a priority to the Jew, but then also to the Greek. But then he continues on to explain what he's not ashamed of. I'm not ashamed of this gospel because in that gospel, it is the righteousness of God being revealed. A righteousness from heaven is being revealed from faith for faith. And then he quotes Habakkuk back in, uh, uh, from the Old Testament. He says the righteous shall live by faith. It is a phrase that Habakkuk was saying about that was coming of the 400 silent years. He says the people that are righteous, the people that have this righteousness... ...they are going to have to keep living and they're going to have to live trusting God. They just shall keep on living with a faith in God. It's really neat. It's so simple. It's fascinating. That that phrase from Habakkuk is repeated multiple times in the New Testament... Then right after he says that's how the people of God that have righteousness live, then in verse 18 he says, For the wrath of God is also revealed from heaven. Uh Uh-oh. This might have been the text that inspired Jonathan Edwards to talk about what it's like for us to be dangling over a cauldron of boiling water because we would be in sin and we would deserve that kind of punishment. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven and it's against all ungodliness. In other words, godlessness, people that live as if there is no God and even those with unrighteousness. Those who don't have the righteousness, so they have in its place their own kind of righteousness, which is not true righteousness. It's unrighteousness of men. And those people that are going to receive the wrath of God, they suppress the truth. They have all these evidences around them, and yet they say, "Mm -mm, I'm going to do what I think is important, what I think is right. This is the text that we have before us, and I'd like us to pray. Dear Lord Jesus, as the word of God is going forth, I pray that you will open our hearts and bring application to us. I pray that when we leave this place, we'll join the apostle and say, I'm not ashamed either. I'm not ashamed at all. ...of this good news. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In these couple of verses, you get the, the core... ...that is developed throughout the next 16 chapters of the book of Romans. And if Romans is, in a, is one of the elite epistles... ...if there is such a, a characterization that some scripture is better than others... Uh, ...just think about it. If the core or the heart of Romans is found here... ...in Romans 1, 16, and 17, and 18... You need to take notice of it. Uh, For for purposes of understanding the whole book, we've started off uh, and we're only down into the third sermon. The first sermon was about a calling. God calls Paul to be an apostle. God calls the people in Rome to be saints. Then the second thing we were looking at was this longing. Because God did a work and started a work in Paul, he now has a new desire, a new longing. It's like the old has passed away and all has become new. And now he strives and reaches forth, not simply for perfection, but he reaches forth to serve God. And one of his callings was to go to Rome, to preach to kings and to emperors and those in authority. And boy, Paul couldn't help himself. When you read the verses, you'll find out, he says, hey, I so much want to come, but I've been hindered. And I I want you to know that I would have been there except those hindrances. And now, at the end there, he says, in verse 14 that I read, 14 and 15, he says, I have this desire that when I finally get there, not just to write it to you, but to preach it to you, to share from my mouth to yours the things that God has revealed about his great salvation." ...that's found in the gospel. So we have a calling, a longing, and now a righteousness. You may have missed it. You may have not seen it as being so significant. But the word righteousness is the core seed of the rest of the book. Because you're going to find out some interesting things there... ...but we see it all here, so I'll give you the gospel in a nutshell. If you're following along, you'll be able to see that you need this righteousness... That this righteousness is something that God alone provides. And thirdly, that if you don't have this righteousness, you're going to be sorry. There are consequences and there are difficulties. And uh, when, you, when you grasp how simple that is, it's just the gospel message. I'm not ashamed of the euangelion, the good news. Because in it, a righteousness of God, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. It's really, really so, so simple that that through the preaching of this message, we get to see about this righteousness. And the reason why it's so significant is the first point, it is righteousness that you and I need. We need it because we don't have it. And God has to reveal it to us because the natural man doesn't ever see this. They don't see what righteousness is. They don't understand this concept as they should. The, the idea there is that righteousness is something that mankind cannot hang on to. It's not even like putting hand, uh, your hands together to hold water that actually will seep out. You, you should be righteous. I should be righteous. And yet, we are not In Romans chapter 7, Paul explains it very simply. He says, I want to do what's right. But he said, there's something inside of me that keeps making me do what's wrong. And he's trying to explain it, and and even to himself, but also to the rest of us. And when we get to Romans 7, you'll see the struggle. But wow, this righteousness is something we need. You don't have it because mankind lost it. Originally, there was something much better. But now, according to 1 Corinthians, Paul explained it to the the people there in Corinth. He said, the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. It's foolishness to them. In other words, man doesn't really understand what true righteousness is. And I can give you an illustration to point it out for you today, is that the word righteousness in the Greek is called dikaiasune. I'm not going to use that word very much. But whenever you see that word, you know that it has some deep meaning. Now, I went back and tried to do a little research for you to find out how it works, and uh, according to one of the lexicons, and they had several of them, but um, this particular one had three definitions. Righteousness is a theological term. It is the quality of being upright. On the one way, it is the quality, state, or practice of judicial responsibility with a focus on fairness, justice, Equitableness. Now, when you think about that, do you hear anybody talking about equity these days? Do anybody do you ever hear about uh, fairness? My goodness, I think if if you turn on the television recently, you're you're seeing the inequity and the struggle that was going on, even with the police to that one individual down south. Or and when you realize these calls, they are human calls. They're looking for righteousness, and there is a taste of it in our soul, and the reason that we have a perception of what righteousness is, even though we don't understand it, is because we're created in the image of God. When I think about it, how this definition goes on to say it's not simply uh, an equitableness and a fairness and a justice for human beings, but it is also descriptive of God, of a transcendent figure who is truly just, who is truly righteous. Now, you can also talk about the quality or state of judicial correctness with a focus on the redemption activity. In other words, it's used as an adjective to describe some of the things that the righteous God is doing, and hence it's righteous. And the third definition is the quality or characteristic of upright behavior. It describes you and me. You know, we kind of would say that this is when people are good. Do you have good kids or bad kids? Usually you don't say, I have righteous kids. Okay, we tend to just simplify it in our modern vernacular to say if you're doing things that are nice and pleasing and pleasant, or I could even go down the list from Philippians chapter 4, things that are lovely, pure, and of good report, those things you might want to put into that category of righteous. But righteousness, from God's perspective, Is something we don't have. You remember, you might even be able to fill in the the final parts of this verse. Our righteousness is considered as filthy rags. Are filthy rags righteous? No, he's trying to show by a metaphor how extreme it is that the things that we think are good, the things that we think are acceptable and lovely, (laughs) they're not. They're not even beautiful word pictures. There is filthy rags. They are basically things that, that are, make you unclean, things that you want to push away and you want to get away from you. That's the first condition. The reason why this righteousness is so important to us, it's a righteousness that you and I need. It is something that we don't have anymore. It's a special commodity. And the world, as I said, is looking for equity and justice but they're really not pursuing the righteousness that we need. It is a righteousness that we don't have. And second point, uh, when, when Psalm 23 that I mentioned in the, in the opening video, it says that in verse, I guess it's um, verse 3 and 4, after he is our, has, declares himself to be our shepherd, that we're not going to be lacking, that he gives us that rest by the still waters, and that he gives us that calmness in the green fields, but then he doesn't leave us there. Our shepherd puts us on a journey. And see if you can finish this phrase. He leads me in the path of righteousness. So since we don't know what righteousness is, we don't have it, we need our shepherd to lead us in those paths to show us. And that's what the interesting thing in Romans here, uh, the second point, is a righteousness that God alone provides. It, it is a righteousness, a dikaiasunei, that comes from him to mankind. Now I, I have three subpoints on this. It now exists, and I want to explain that to you, because before this time we didn't really have it. Then secondly, it is now being revealed, which is what our text tells us. And thirdly, it now can be given or imputed, which we'll find out in the book of Romans, further explained in chapter four. We're only in chapter one, and so as he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God of salvation, for in it, the gospel reveals a righteousness from God. God is now making this righteousness available. Now, when you look at it there, he provides it. First thing is, it now exists because the first Adam lost it. The second Adam secured it. So what was it? Let me take you back to Genesis chapter one. Where, we, where we're introduced to the creation. And when everything was done, it was all very good. You could even say it was righteous. Everything was wonderful. And then God made Adam and Eve, and he still said, it's very good. Now, before they had children, that's when some troubles came in. These image bearers of God, they ended up falling short of the standard of perfection. God had entered into a covenant with Adam and Eve, and he told them that you needed to, to, to keep the terms of the covenant. And if you do, you shall live. But if you choose not to keep the terms of the covenant, you shall not live. You will die. You'll be separated. Because the word death has to do with separation. And there's several kinds of separation. The death, the physical death is of your, of your body from your spirit. But there's also the second death which is where you are separated from God's grace to have an eternal existence under his wrath, which we'll pick up in verse 18. Jesus, the second Adam, did what the first Adam couldn't do. The first Adam couldn't keep his wife in line, and he went ahead and took the the bite of the fruit, and he willfully said, I want to be like God too. And he became like God, knowing good and evil, and actually knowing what it feels like to be on the ugly side of God. All points, Jesus was tempted like as we are. He endured every temptation, whether it is to eat too much, to drink too much, to look at, at pictures you shouldn't be looking at, to be able to steal, to be able to take, to be able to, to, to want an easy life, to not want to go through any difficulties. In all points, Jesus was tempted as we are. And as, as, as it was proven in the, in the temptations in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, he was without sin. The word of God was important to him. It is written, he said, again and again. He went back and said, no, I'm not going to break any of God's laws or commandments. He was a lamb without spot or blemish. He was the perfect lamb of God. And and theologically, we say that he had an obedience that was both active and passive. He was the one that brought about this righteousness into this world that otherwise wasn't known. Everybody had the law of God, had the terms of the covenant, and guess what happened? All we like sheep have gone astray. He's going to get into that in chapter 1. I mean, that we're quoting the same storyline, but God had to provide it, and he did it through Jesus keeping his life pure, being the spotless lamb, having righteousness to his account. He didn't have filthy rags. He kept the whole word of God. Actively, he did everything that the scripture demanded. And passively, he even submitted himself to the cruel punishments of the law. Now, if you understand what that means, is when Jesus lived his 33 years, how many times did he miss the mark? Praise the Lord, you all got that one right. Okay, I did not just get quiet. You got to know that Jesus was righteous. He had a dikasune that was, that is unrighteous. Almost unearthly. He's the only human being that's been righteous. That was active. Always doing the will of God. Even when he was going to go to the cruel cross. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, not my will, but thine be done. He wished that the cup of suffering and separation from the Father could pass. But it wouldn't. And in righteousness, he submitted to it. See, so you have active obedience that also parallels with the passive obedience. Because Jesus did die. Did he die because he was bad? If you were to say yes, then you'd have a short-term memory problem. Because we just said he had no sin in his life. So why did he die? What is the reason why? He died because he took on our sin. If you go back to Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with all the grief. Remember, he was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. And yet he was bruised and beaten. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we would get healing. See, he submitted to the curse of the law. If you sin, you shall die. So when he went to the cruel cross, he was the one who became sin for us and suffered the death that we should have died. The active and passive obedience of Christ on display. See, it now exists. Secondly, uh, when you understand this righteousness that God provides, is that it is now revealed. Up to this point, the Apostle Paul hasn't, well, I mean, his whole lifetime, he's pretty much been able to talk about the righteousness of Jesus. But before the writing of the New Testament, where did you find righteousness in the Old Testament? Was there anybody righteous? No, even Paul says there was none righteous. No, not one. So when you go back to the Old Testament, you're going to find that some people did have some righteousness. But it wasn't their own. Now this righteousness is being, it's, it's available to them. And when you look here, Paul's statement, the righteousness of God is revealed. Can you see it? Are you looking at it? Do you understand it? Do you have it? Until Jesus came, the righteous standard was the law. Whenever you saw the rules, it's almost like whenever you see a policeman, what do you do when you're driving? You slow down. You always check yourself to see if you're right or not right. And isn't it great when you say, I'm going the speed limit or he didn't pull me over. Until Jesus came, the standard was the law. The law exposed our lack of righteousness uh, because everybody was supposed to perform. They were supposed to... Now, it is true that some perform better than others. Just like if you are going to uh, have somebody work on your house, you know, do you get any carpenter to do it? No, you try to get one that can do a good job. If you watch any of those TV shows, like Dancing with the Stars or whatever, you can see some people don't know how to dance. Some do. Whenever you go through, you're going to realize that some people can perform the law a little better than others. Some people have the right vocabulary better than others. Some people dress the part a little better than others. It is true, if you compare yourself among yourselves, you're going to look better than a lot of others. But you're also going to look a lot worse. But the standard is not about comparing with everybody else. Your performance is measured against the unchangeable standard of scripture. Have you missed the mark? When we go through the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me. How many of you kept that one? You see, all have gone astray. And that's why this righteousness is being revealed. It's being provided by God. And God is making it known. That law was a schoolmaster. When we saw the law, when we saw how many rules we've broken, we say, oh, we need help. And it takes us to Christ. It's a schoolmaster that introduces us to the one who knows how to keep the law. Jesus the perfect one. It is now being revealed. That is so interesting. How is it being revealed? If you look at, at Romans chapter 1, it is seen, I think, in verse 15. So if you bring up verse 15, uh, it's, it's so simple I walked right over top of it. And yet it's at the core. He says, how is this righteousness being revealed? Maybe you can figure it out from that text. Paul says... I'm eager to come to Rome so that the righteousness of God could be revealed to you by what? By preaching. Somehow or other, it's easy to skip over this, especially in our culture where you don't listen to preachers like you used to. And what I'm talking about is if you go back 100 years before before all the technology, a lot of people will be in church at least in our culture, because they wanted to hear, they wanted, they wanted to know how the word of God is to be expressed and proclaimed and understood and applied. It's so neat, but as we have moved on, we no longer focus on preaching. In fact, if you're like most people, and I think probably you are, you probably now are the judge of preaching rather than the, the, the ones who love to, to enjoy it. It's kind of like a meal. You know. If, if, uh, if, if you just go to McDonald's and buy a meal, you know what you're getting. If you go to a, a fancy place like the one down the road where the steaks are sold, if you get a steak and it's not just perfect, what do you do? Oh, well, I'll eat anyway. No, your expectations are higher. And so now you say, I'm sending it back. The chef didn't do it right. It's cooked too much. Or it's not cooked enough. You know, we become judges. And that's what's happened in this modern era where the preaching of the word has been devalued because we can get better preachers or we can listen to the voices that we want to hear. And so as a result, there is a tendency to just dismiss preaching or to create a category for preaching. Preaching should only be with smiles. Preaching should only be 24 minutes. Preaching should only be to, on topics that we like. Preaching should never go to Medlin. Do you understand what I mean? Why do I say this? It's because this is normal in 2023. This is where we've gotten to. I don't know any of you that would be immune to it, because I'm not immune to it. You get a substitute preacher, or if you go to another church, or you hear this, everybody just listens, and what we always do is critique, critique, and critique. Now, if you had to switch places with me and stand up here to preach you might have a five-minute sermon. Maybe a six-minute, because then you get less critique. And everybody will praise you because that was nice and short. It's really interesting, though, but if you look at the text, how is the righteousness, this a-righteousness from God being revealed? And it's going to be revealed by the preaching of the Word. The whole counsel of God is going to be communicated to the people in Rome. I wanted you to notice it. And in this preaching, there is a, a provision that you can get it. You see, this is why when I asked you that question, was anybody righteous in the Old Testament? It's kind of a trick question. Because Paul's going to tell us that there were some people who had righteousness. Can you name one? Oh, boy. It's really not that hard. Okay? Anybody that's a Christian in the Old Testament has righteousness. Okay? They all have to have it the same way. okay? And that's what Paul is revealing as he's writing this and wanting to come and preach it. He is telling people that there is a righteousness that you can have from God. It is a righteousness not built on performance. It is a righteousness that is imputed to your account. It is given to you. It's as if God gets his wallet out and has a $1,000 bill and he goes down to your bank and he puts it in your bank account. Is that yours? Once it's in your bank account, the government will tax you on it. Of course it's yours. And this whole concept of imputation, he's going to explain it. And the number one illustration that he says, Abraham, Abraham. I'm not talking about preacher last week. I'm talking about Abraham from Genesis 22. This man was willing to obey God, even though he was a sinner. Remember when God gave him that ultimate test in chapter 22? Abraham, that son that you've been waiting 25 years to get, that little baby boy, who is now 12 years old. That little boy, you need to bring him up to Mount Moriah and you need to kill him. You need to offer him up. Now, for anybody listening to me, they're going to say, what a crazy God you've got. He promises you a kid and then he says, I want him back. And, and you would say, what a gruesome God that he's willing to have child sacrifice. Oh, no, maybe they wouldn't do that if they're pro-abortion. Because that's what they do in abortion. But what Abraham did was obey God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And if you understand Hebrews 11, we get into the mind of Abraham where where the writer says, when Abraham was bringing the knife down to kill his only son, he believed that God was going to raise that son back up to life. (laughs) I don't know about you, what kind of faith he had. He had the promise of God that in that boy, the world would be blessed. In that boy, all the nations of the world will receive a blessing. And of course, that was speaking of the Son of God coming many generations later. Abraham believed God. And it was imputed to him For righteousness. You see, that's the key to this text. It is a righteousness not only that you need because you don't have it, but it is a righteousness that God provides. He provided it through Christ, and He's revealing it now, and that righteousness is able to be imputed to our account to anyone who believes. It can be given. The transaction is now in in place. Now we understand it, and it wasn't fully explained in the Old Testament, but Paul is going to explain it to, to the people in Rome. He wants to preach it to them. He says, you know that thing called the substitutionary atonement? Jesus took your place. He was your substitute. And because he was your substitute, the shedding of his blood brought about the remission of sins. He took your sin. We often have said it's kind of like this great transfer. Our our sin was put on him, and his righteousness was put on us. That's what the imputation of righteousness is all about. Because of this spiritual transaction, we can almost symbolically have that cloak of righteousness. You know, almost, I've always pictured it as a little kid, as a white lab coat. I wish I had one in my office, I'd be wearing it. It's so beautiful to think that we have his righteousness. Righteousness. You see, a righteousness of God is now being revealed. But the third point of this text is a righteousness that changes your relationship with God. Because when you see the contrast, for the ones with this righteousness, you live by faith for faith. But the ones who do not have it, verse 18, you live a foolish life of folly. Now, and look at the contrast between the two. If you have righteousness, I'm going to go ahead and read that for you in in verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And then he quotes Habakkuk, the righteous always live by faith. So if you have this righteousness, if it's been imputed to your account because you're believing in Jesus, then the way you live is that you live in faith and for faith. Faith drives you faith is like something that that helps you to take the next step forward i remember in that second indiana jones movie remember he was looking for that 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 uh, chalice uh and he was trying to get that that i guess he treated it like if you drink it you'll be able to have everlasting life and so they have to follow all these clues which indiana jones was great at doing but that one thing where he stands on this cliff and the entrance is on the other side of the mountain. And there's a great valley. And, and, it, and Indiana Jones reads the article, reads the instruction again. And it says that you have to step out in faith. And so he's there standing here with nothing in front. And he's just about ready to take this step. And of course, I love it when they pick up some dirt and throw it out there. And then when he throws the dirt, then you can see that there's an invisible like a glass floor. And the glass, and so then he says, oh, I can step out there. And he walks over to the entrance. For us, what does it mean to step out in faith? What does it mean to live by faith? From faith to faith. I mean, the just shall live all the time, 100% of the time, by faith. Now, that's the way that a righteousness from God comes into your life. And that's symbolic then of how you live. You live by faith. But the truth is, on the other side, the contrast is if you don't have this righteousness, if it's still not yours, if it's never been imputed to your account because you're not resting in what Christ has done on Calvary's cross. The great transaction hasn't taken place and you are there holding all of your unrighteousness. What does the Bible say? Verse 18, chapter 1. The wrath of God is being poured out. I don't know if you can see that, the brighter contrast. It couldn't, be, it couldn't be more stark. The righteous live by faith. Those who don't have righteousness, they live by sight. They do what's right in their own eyes. They think that the, the preaching of the cross is foolishness, and therefore they say, I don't want that. I want to have my justice. I want to have my social equity. I want to have my heaven on earth because I don't believe all that stuff that there's a heaven in heaven. I want to have my choices. And if I want to have sex and have the liberty to fix that sex problem by taking the little life, just like the little poster was saying, all that's going inside. But people, they are in unrighteousness doing what's right in their own eyes. And when we're living in a culture where sin is codified, where now it is not only acceptable, but it's promoted. And it's not only that it's promoted, but it's funded. When you look at some of these great budgets that are being put out in the state and in the nation, they are pumping money into institutions that are teaching people to do whatever they want to do, except preach the gospel. If you preach the gospel, be quiet. Go to the back of the line. Stand down. Be discredited. You are crazy if you don't let people have sex any way they want and have no consequences for however they do whatever they do. It is crazy. The wrath of God is not affected by the way the culture promotes its things. And when you get that, that drives us to be like Paul, to be eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because that's the only remedy. Yes, we can go picket, we can march, we can stand up for things, and we can make our voice known as citizens. But I'll tell you that the only thing that has eternal significance is whether they have that righteousness that lasts forever. I have a few questions of our application. I don't want you to live in folly without it, but I want you to live with it. The just shall live by faith. Seeing God and his fingerprints in this world is what faith does. When you live by faith, you have this righteousness, this righteous account. As I said, the white lab coat. And seeing, when you have this, when you live by faith, you see God on things. You see God's fingerprints, even on tragedies and difficulties. Even when things don't work out right, you can say God's working this together for good. For them that are the Righteous. The ones who are the called according to his purpose. When you you also, as a righteous one, you see the beauty of holiness and the ugliness of sin, you never get deceived, even though they have slick commercials that tell you this is fun. I mean, my goodness, I've seen a few things that are on TV that I can't even repeat in church. They're trying to talk about binary and change of this and all the different rainbow things, and it's like, come on, people. There's two genders. God made male and female all very good. Seeing the beauty of holiness, the ugliness of sin, because God also sees the value of every soul that he's created. I read from you Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In my mother's womb, the Lord knit these parts together. You see, God is intimately aware of our situation. And every life is valued. Every soul, in whatever state you find it, whether in the womb or out of the womb or aged, they are precious in his sight. So how do you get this righteousness? I have to ask a couple questions. Well, in order for you to get this righteousness, you can't pay for it. You can't buy it. You can't even put enough money in the offering plate to try to make us try to pretend that you've got it. You can give the money in the offering plate, but it's never going to get you that righteous status. If you want the white lab coat of Christ's righteousness, you trust in him and what he did on Calvary's cross. Now, how do you trust on somebody you've not heard? If you turn in your Bibles, you can see in Romans 10, he explains it so well for us. And Paul is going to be doing this as we go through. You, you'll see it in chapter 10. He says, I want you to, to read it with me. Um, in verse 14 or verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. But then the obvious, how are you going to call on him if you've on, on him if you have not believed? If you're not trusting in Christ, how can you call on Him? If you don't have eyes to see it spiritually, you're never going to see Him. He says, How are people to believe in God or in Christ of whom they've never heard? If they've never heard of Jesus, I mean, they hear it as this curse word, I'm sure everybody in our culture has done that. But have they ever heard the voice of Christ? Have you heard the voice of Christ? How are they, verse 25, or uh, still in verse 14, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? Without someone preaching. Verse 15, and how are they to preach unless somebody sends them? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach this good news. This is the preaching of the good news. This is the whole point I wanted you to be able to see, is that God sends people... To preach the good news to you so that the righteousness of God can be available and imputed to you. So in verse chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, I quickly want to highlight this. Uh, when I was reading in Dr. Paisley's book, he made this and It just fascinated my soul. I think you'll be encouraged. Paul's preaching, Paul's preaching did these things. First, it was a discharge of the preaching duty. In verse 14, I'm a debtor to do it. I have to do it. This is, God's put it on my soul from the Acts 9 call. God said, this is what you're supposed to do. Then secondly, about this preaching in verse 15, he says, I want to do it. I have a longing to do it. I am so eager to do it. I want to, I want to, I want to. Do you have that kind of desire? Then he says the defensive preaching. He stands up for it. He says, I'm not ashamed at all. People may look at me and put me down. They may mock me. They may judge what I have to say when I open my mouth. Paul was apparently a short guy and everything else. There was a lot of, yeah, my goodness, you know he was stoned not with drugs, but I mean, they threw stones at him. They, he shipwrecked a few times. There's a, he went through a misery of things and you can read about that in 1 Corinthians, uh, I think it's 5 through 8, or 2 Corinthians 5 through 8. He defends his apostleship because he had to go through all this difficulty. But here he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm still not ashamed. I'll always stand up for this gospel. That righteousness of God is something that I would never barter. I would never give away. The the message and the means of communication are that the message and the power, uh, they're both called the power of God. In this particular text, he says in it, uh, I'll read it for you in Romans 1 here. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. In other words, the euangelion is the power of God. But if I took you over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 18, you're going to find that Paul is writing them, and he says it's the preaching of the cross that is the power of God to salvation. Can you see the, the connection? The euangelion is the power of God, and the preaching of the cross is the power of God to salvation. So what can you deduce? The gospel... And the preaching of the cross, they're the same. They're the power of God to save people. This is how the righteousness will come to you. A righteousness is being revealed as God speaks it through these preachers. So you can see that it was uh, the defense of the whole act of preaching and then the the power of it. This dunamis, it is like a spark. It is like dynamite. It changes things. When you hear the word of God being proclaimed, should you just sit there and say, "Mm, let me just nod off. Mm -hmm. You never stood in my shoes. You don't know what you look like. (laughs) Sometimes I don't know what I look like. But it's interesting that the word of God is powerful. It's quick and powerful. The the design of this preaching is designed, uh, this is interesting, for eternity, for a harvest of souls. If you read there, he says it is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is designed for an eternity of souls, for salvation. It is designed for everyone to hear, uh, for we do not know who will believe. Yeah, I do believe there is an elect, but I don't know who they are. Praise God that there are some that God is going to save, but as far as I'm concerned, I want to preach to everyone. And that's what he says here, to, to everyone. The limiting factor is who has faith and who doesn't. And that's something that God works with you, not me. Uh, The rest of the epistle expounds this doctrine of preaching. I mean, excuse me, it was designed to prioritize the covenant community first. And then secondly, it was designed to be inclusive. Yes, inclusive is something that Christianity still embraces. He says to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And while I was traveling this trip on on my week away, that was one of the epiphanies. What does it mean to be Jewish? Jewish. Bummer, I'm not a Jew. No, that's not the way you look at it. The Old Testament, to be a child of Abraham... ...meant you were in the covenant community. And if you were a part of that covenant community... ...you got the covenant signs... ...and you got the covenant blessings. And by being a part of the covenant blessings... ...you would grow up in an era... ...where your parents would tell you what was right and wrong... ...because they would tell you what was in the Torah. They would tell you what's in the book of the law... They would show you what is right instead of letting you listen to TikTok, which tells you what's wrong. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's to the covenant community. Paul was going to go to the Christian community or to the ones who had the word of God. Even if they didn't understand this righteousness, he was going to go proclaim about this imputed righteousness that comes to those who are resting in Christ, living by faith. But also to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise and to the fools. He was going to tell it to anybody that would hear him. And that's so cool about the design of preaching. To go into all the world and to preach this good news. And God will draw all kinds of people to himself. The doctrine of this preaching is that the righteousness of God is going to be revealed through this proclamation. It is known, um, the, it is known throughout this book that you're going to see the righteousness of God revealed and revealed. And there's this duality as well in the preaching. The preaching is going to also bring up the bad news. And that's what I just did. And that's why I'll finish the sermon. The bad news was, verse 18, God is not going to wink, wink at unrighteousness. No matter how nice you are, no matter how well-dressed you are, no matter how articulate you are, or let me do the opposite, no matter how poor you are, no matter how difficult you speak, or maybe you stutter at everything, no matter if your thoughts are jumbled, or no matter if you can't even get thoughts together. You can't remember them. The wrath of God is still going to come on the unrighteousness of men. That's what preaching tells people. But it doesn't stop there. But it says the love of God, which changes our hearts, was being poured out through Jesus Christ. And if you're resting in what he did, you have eternal life. You don't have to fear the wrath of God ever being poured out on you, for it was laid on him, the iniquity of us all. Now he leads us in the paths of righteousness, which has some hills and some valleys, the valley of the shadows of the death, but his rod and staff will comfort us, and he'll take us even when we're dealing with enemies to sit at table with us. But one day, one day, Like we're remembering Carol today. Carol Carey. She was the first one to help me to find a house in town. One day, we won't have to be burdened with this world anymore. And the righteousness we have is going to now match up with a transformed existence. Our sin nature is put behind. And there'll never be a church split in heaven. There'll never be a difficulty. There won't be any taxes going up, nor will the minimum wage ever get to $28 or whatever it's going to get. When we get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be because we will have the righteousness of God. Lord Jesus, I do thank you that the message of, of, of uh, Romans chapter one is, is full of encouragement. I do pray that as we go forth from this place that we'll be more eager to share it, we realize now that we don't save people, you do. They need your righteousness, and you have revealed it in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, you have put it on our tongues, and as we, as we say here at New Covenant, you have put it on our lips, in our lives, and through our loves, so that people might see the wonders of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ and be transformed to a righteous existence in glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. offering is going to be collected.